Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. You guys ever get that greeting before? Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ died on a Friday. He rose on a Sunday. So saints gather all around the world to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? Whether you're having a tough week, whether you're in a really difficult and dark and discouraging season of life, or whether you're in a really bright and encouraging season of life, either way, there is hope for you. Because Christ not only died for our sins, but rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so if you're wondering, did that really happen? Well, just look around at saints gathering everywhere to celebrate this resurrection from the dead. I bring you greetings on behalf of Bethany Baptist Church from our church family. Um, We're just up the street from you guys here. I actually take my kids to um, Heritage Park quite often, so we've seen your church around. Uh, In that regard, Jeff and I have been friends for about, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years. I've known him since the early 2010s. Um, I just reconnected with Jeff recently, and so our church has been praying for you guys, and we pray for you on Sunday mornings. So I just looked up on my last, my prayer sheets. When was the last time I prayed for Generations Church? And I prayed for you guys on June 12th in our, in our Sunday morning gathering, and I prayed for Jeff's sabbatical. I prayed for your sermon series on Ephesians. I hope that's going well. I'm here to wrap up Ephesians as you guys get to the next book, to Philippians. Uh, I prayed for the elders as they're thinking about your collective responsibility to each other for your discipleship, for the church's growth, for the church's direction, and the dynamics of church. I've been asking God that he would give your church family and your elders wisdom as you guys continue to seek Christ and to seek to honor him here in Cerritos and in this uh, southeast L.A. County region. So we're grateful for you. We're grateful to be partners with you. We love you, and we are here uh, side by side with you guys, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So... Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible, if you have a Bible, and open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verse 16 to, I'm sorry, verse 22, all the way to the end of the book. I'm assuming Jeff gave me the biggest chunk of the book. So Ephesians 5, beginning verse 22, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the book. So once you're there, we're going to look at households, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, and the way that would be applied would be typically the workplace, and then the whole armor of God. All right? So you guys ready? Let's, let's hear God's word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, any children here? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him, with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, the, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. It is an act of worship just to read your word out loud. We need your word. Your word gives life. Your word teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains us in righteousness so that we may be men and women of God complete and equipped for every good work. Thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you, that these are your very words. We pray now that you would captivate our minds with the glories of Jesus that we would see the goodness of your commands and your authority, 
and that we would walk faithfully and worthily of the calling you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you guys have been going through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about the power of God. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 that your eyes may be opened to see the immeasurable greatness of the power that is working in you. Not that will work in you or that works in you sometimes, but that the infinite power of God, the same power of God that created the world, the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead, the same power of God that raised you from the dead when you became a Christian, the same power of God that took Gentiles and Jews and made them one body in Christ and made the church as a display of his glory to the universe. That power is actively, constantly, incessantly working in you if you're a Christian. Do you believe that? Paul's prayer is that you would see that because you might believe that. I mean, I might believe that. I know that, I know that verse, but do I really believe that? Do I really see it with the eyes of my heart? Do I trust in that resurrection power of Christ, of God, working in me? What a privilege to have God's power constantly working in us who believe. Now, this power, according to Ephesians 3.10, is so that the church together would be the display of God's glorious wisdom to the universe, to devils, to angels, to all spiritual powers and principalities, that this church gathered here singing to God would be a display to the whole universe that God is powerful. I mean, look at any group of Christians who get together. We're all sinners, right? We're all broken. We have so many reasons to be divided from each other. But that God would make us one in Christ, a family, displays the wisdom of God to the world and hopefully even to the city of Cerritos, right? And to the surrounding cities around us. We want to display God's glory. We want to display God's wisdom. Now, if you have the book of Ephesians, I'm going to have you flip around because I want to show you a few things here in terms of the main, I'm just going to give you an overview of Ephesians and then jump into my really long text, okay? So Ephesians, it's all about seeing the power of God working in your lives. Why? What's the whole purpose? Look at Ephesians 4.1. Look at Ephesians 4.1 in your Bible. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? What's the urge here? Because of God's power, he wants you to what? Walk. And walk how? Worthy. It walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Okay, so here's the main point of all God's power working in you, that you all as a church family and you individually would walk worthy of the calling of this glorious, gracious God. You need to walk worthy of that call. And so the whole Ephesians 4 through 6 gives five ways to walk worthy. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, what does it mean to walk worthy? It means to walk in unity in the midst of your diversity. That's Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. But look at Ephesians 4, 17. A second walk. Um, so walking worthy means walking in unity. Secondly, in Ephesians 4, 17, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So now you need to walk with a holy mindset. Okay? That's Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 1. And then you get to Ephesians 5, 2. It says walk in what? Walk in love. Are you walking in love? That's how we walk as a church family. That's how we walk as Christians, in love. Because God is love, right? And then Ephesians 5, 8 says, walk as children of, you guys see that? Walk as children of what? Of light. Walk in the light. And then we get to our text, which Alex covered part of it last week, Ephesians 5, 16, which says, look carefully then how you walk. So walk carefully. You guys see that? 
Five ways to walk worthy. Walk in unity. Walk with a transformed holy mindset. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk carefully. And then you get to Ephesians 6.10 or 6.14, and you get a different verb. What's Ephesians 6.14 command you to do? What does it say? Stand. Walk worthy. Walk in unity. Walk in love. Walk with a transformed mindset. Walk in the light. Walk carefully, and then stand. Don't move. Don't be shifted by Satan and the demons as they try to push you over. Keep walking. Keep living. Keep moving. Keep marching. Not just on your own, but together. We walk worthy of a God who is worthy of all honor, all praise, and all glory. Amen? We walk worthy of this God. And so we want to focus now. My task is the last part. Walk carefully and stand. So that's what we're going to focus on for the rest. So my two points, if you want to know my two points of my sermon, if you're going to walk worthy of the call, here's at least two of the many different walks, two more aspects you need to walk worthy of the call. What is it? Number one, walk carefully. And number two, stand firmly. Okay? If you're going to live worthy of Christ, you need to walk carefully and you need to stand firmly. We'll just look at those two one at a time. So let's look at the first one first, walk carefully, and then we will look at walk um, or stand firmly. So when, you, when we talk about walking carefully, again, I'm, I know I'm kind of going into the passage from last week, and I did listen to last week's sermon just to know that I'm continuing with the flow of what's going on here. So I listened to Alex's sermon. And so um, walking carefully means being filled with the, or filled by whom? Filled with the Spirit, right? So we want to be, to walk carefully means you need to walk in wisdom. You need to make the best use of the time. You need to be filled by the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, this careful walking goes into your marriages. It goes into your parenting and you're growing up in your parents' home. It goes into your workplaces. It goes into all of your interactions. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit is not just to be filled with the Spirit on Sunday. Now, we want to be filled with the Spirit on Sunday. This is where hopefully you get your tank refilled in, in many ways. But we want to sing that song that, that, the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is welcome in our lives. And He's welcome to fill us, not just here, but in our marriages, right? In the bedroom, in the kitchen, at the workplace, in parenting, in our children's room, when our, when our children disobey. We want the Holy Spirit welcome there. Filling that atmosphere, right? Filling that place. And the reason we get these commands here is because, why does it say, I, I was wondering, you know, as I was going through Ephesians, I've, I love Ephesians, wonderful book. I, I wonder, why, Paul, did you say walk carefully with this section, and it's the longest section, then the, why, why not walk in light in your marriage? Why not walk in love? Walk in love in your marriage, right? You'd think walk in love. But why does he say walk carefully when it comes to marriage and parenting and the workplace? You know why? Because in marriage and in our homes and in the workplaces is where we are tempted to walk the most carelessly, right? Because you're there all the time. That's where you put your guard down. On Sundays, it is, I mean, it could still be hard and I hope you, I hope you don't do this, but it's, it could, you could put a mask on on Sundays, right? You could come and put on a happy face and just act like everything's okay and then go back home to, to, to the real life, right? Through the, throughout the week. But at home, it's too tiring to put the mask on all the time. You eventually just got to drop it because it's just too tiring to fake it, right? And at work, if you're there 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, it gets tiring to keep the mask on. So, so some of you just put it down. So that's where we get more, most careless. And I'm not saying be careful to make sure you keep your mask on. What I'm saying is be careful to make sure you're walking in the spirit at home. 
and in the marriage and in, the, in, the, in parenting and in the household and at work, all right? So let's think about what does it mean here to walk carefully. Now, in walking carefully, it has to do with authority. Authority is a bad word in our culture today, right? We don't like authority. So is authority a good thing or a bad thing? How many of you say authority is a good thing? Raise your hand. How many of you say authority is a bad thing? None of you? How many of you have seen authority be, be, be used really badly? Yeah, right? Authority can be abused really easily. You guys, are, you guys know the Bible. You know authority is good. But, but authority, people are scared of authority because people abuse authority, right? They use their power to oppress those under that power. So authority in our culture is a bad word. So authority can be bad if it's used badly. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Right? Yeah, it's good when you're cooking, right? And you have cold food and you want, you want to cook something. You want to get, make sure the meat is cooked. But when your house is on fire, like one of our church members, a firework was lit and Sunday night we're at the church gathering and the tree right next to his house, it was just lit on fire and it, it burned, it broke the glass on his side of the windows. The neighbor's right across next door. Fire, that, that fire is not a good thing, right? So fire can be a good thing. Fire can be a bad thing. It depends on how it's used. Same thing with authority. Now, authority is good. Why is authority good, though? Authority is good, or when is authority good? Let me read to you 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. It says this. Just listen. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke to me, David said. He who rules over men righteously, there's authority, rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is a light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, with tender, with the, when the tender grass springs out from the earth through sunshine after rain. In other words, when someone uses authority righteously, it's a blessing. It's wonderful. It causes life to flourish when authority is used well. And so Paul writes to this church, he talks about, he starts with those under authority and those with authority, and he talks to both groups. Now, if you are under authority, here's the main thing of, of this passage before we go into the details here. Submit to authority as your submission to Christ as Lord, as the ultimate authority, okay? If you are good at submitting uh, to the Lord, and good at some, uh, then you'll be, good at, uh, you'll be good in the positions of authority when God gives you authority, okay? People with authority who are not good at submitting are horrible with authority. They're spoiled, right? I mean, if you get a spoiled brat who's a kid, and they're spoiled all the way through life, and then you give them real, real big authority over people, what are they going to do with it? They're going to tyrannize people, Right? So those who submit to authority know how to use authority well. So brothers and sisters, take joy and encouragement in submitting to authority. But not only that, uh, we need to exercise authority rightly as a display of the Lord Jesus. It's amazing in this past. It's not amazing today, but read, imagine re reading Ephesians in that first century when Tychicus brought this letter from Paul to the church, and the whole church is gathered, and Paul tells the wives, wives, submit to your husbands, and the husbands are like, yeah. Submit, right? And then, Paul, and then, and then you, uh, Tychicus keeps reading. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Lay down your lives. What? Right? And, and like to call out the husbands in that culture was not normal. To tell children to obey your parents, that's normal. To call out the fathers, don't provoke your children, that's not normal in that culture. I mean, it's normal today in America, right? But you got to get back to that first century. To tell slaves to obey their masters in that time, that's normal. But to call out the masters and say, masters, you have a master, and God is going to judge you without, with complete fairness and no partiality. 
You might get away with a lot of things on earth. You will not get away on judgment day. To call that out in a church congregation when there are slaves and masters there, the slaves could be like, oh, dang, he's calling out the masters, right? All of a sudden, if you're a Christian who's a master and that text just called you out, the slaves can, can hold that, right? Now everyone's accountable. God, he, Paul just puts everyone on blast, right? He just puts everyone out there accountable. There's no one who has ultimate authority except God. And everyone is under God's authority. So we must submit properly. Okay, with all that being said, all that's long introduction. I got 25 minutes left. Okay, let me get through this long text. I, PJ, you haven't even got to the first verse. All right, let's go. So let's talk about marriage first. So in, in walking carefully, we're talking about marriage, uh, parenting and, and child rearing, and then um, work. So in marriage, what does it say? Wives, what does it tell the wives? Submit to your Why are the husbands saying it louder than the wives? All right. <laughs> wives, submit to your husbands. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Good, I heard some men's voice there. Good. Husbands, love your wives. To understand this dynamic, we need to understand, we need to understand what is a man and what is a woman. And you, this is 2022. If I, was telling, if I was preaching this in 2012, you're like, oh, yeah, everyone knows what a man and woman is. 2022, this is a debate, right? Okay, so biblically speaking, what makes a man a man and not a woman? And what makes a woman a woman and not a man? If your kids ask you that question, you should have a good biblical answer. So here's the catechism we use with our kids in my home and in our church. And this is the answer. So when, when they ask, what is God's design for manhood? The answer we tell our kids is the essence of mature masculinity. This is not just husbanding, but just manhood. Is the benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women and others in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships to fulfill humanity's God-given commission. Okay? A benevolent responsibility to, provide, to lead, provide for, and protect all women in appropriate ways, right? What is, what is God's design for womanhood? The essence of mature femininity, femininity is the freeing disposition to support and strengthen worthy leadership from men. And I got four daughters. I have five kids. I got four, an only begotten son and four daughters, right? <laughs> so, um, so this is big for me to make sure I get womanhood right because I'm raising four women, it's a freeing disposition to support and strengthen worthy leadership from men. And then I look at my daughters in the face and say, and reject or redirect unworthy leadership in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships to fulfill humanity's God-given commission. Okay, if you understand manhood and womanhood, the responsibility for men to lead, provide for, and protect, just generally speaking, women and others to fulfill God's commission. And then for women to, to, to have that freeing disposition. It's not oppressive. It's not supposed to be oppressive. It's supposed to be a freeing disposition to support and strengthen worthy leadership, to make men even stronger because of the way she supports and strengthens them. Or, and make them stronger by rejecting and redirecting his unworthy leadership. Now, when you get to this, so if you understand that biblically and you get to a text like this, this makes sense, right? So when you put that in marriage, it, it takes on a higher level. Okay, but it's the same thing, manhood and womanhood, now it's just applied to marriage. So, so let's just go through it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now it says, submit to your husbands, be subject to, to your husbands, willingly and personally, verse 22, um, as to the Lord. So that means you should listen to your husbands. Your husband is the head, it says here in the passage, right? The, uh, just as Christ is the head of the body, uh, so in the same way, the husband is the head of the wife. So that means you should follow, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's not the, 
well, the husband's the head, but I'm the neck. And I can turn the head whichever way I want. Right? <laughs> no, it's not, not, not that. It's, you're the body like following the directives of the brain, right? That's what, that's what the wives are to do. Now, so submit means follow and listen and actually put your husband's decisions. He has final decision over your decision. As long as it's not what? It says as to the Lord. So as long as your husband's not leading you to do what? To sin, right? If your husband's leading you to sin, unworthy leadership. Re- you know, you reject and redirect that. But even if make, your husband makes a, a foolish decision, you could tell him, my wife has told me many times over 17 years, PJ, you're a fool, you know? <laughs> That's a foolish decision. I disagree with you. But you're not sinning. So I'm going to follow you, and hopefully over the years you'll learn that I have wisdom that you should actually be paying attention to. And 17 years later, I listen to her more than I did on day 17. In year 17, I listen a lot more. I treasure my wife's wisdom. She does support and strengthen worthy leadership and reject and redirect unworthy leadership. And it helps me grow in wisdom. But the point is, the, my wife has done that by submitting even when it's a foolish, non-sinful decision. She has gained influence and power to, to move me by her love and her wisdom and her godliness. Okay, so, so that's what wives need to do. But let me clarify five things for wives. Submission does not mean, so let's clarify, and actually for husbands too, submission does not mean five things. It does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Okay, it does not mean agreeing with everything. Secondly, it does not mean leaving your brain at the door or, at the well, or, or your will at the wedding altar. Now you don't have a decision or a choice or a word. Thirdly, it does not mean that you avoid changing your husband. Submission does not mean that the wife does not do anything. Um, she should still speak the truth in love, being filled by the Spirit, right? And so it does not mean uh, not changing your husband. Marriage is all about changing each other in godly ways and in the right ways. Number four, it does not mean putting the will of your husband above the will of Christ. Christ is the ultimate authority. Every other authority is a penultimate authority. Christ is the ultimate authority. So whenever you, that's what we just do in order of operations, right? If there's a higher authority and there's a lower authority, and this lower authority is disagreeing with the higher authority, which one should you go with? The higher authority. And Christ is the highest authority. So, so you never put your husband's will above Christ's will. And then um, fifthly, uh, submission does not mean acting out of slavish fear toward your husband or tolerating abuse. So submission is the divine calling. Here's what John Piper says. It's the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's non-sinful leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. Submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. And why does a wife do this? Because she is the church, she's representing the church, and the husband's representing whom? Christ. So let's go to that, okay? Well, actually, wait, one more thing for, for wives. I got I to stick up for the wives here. So when I preached this at our church, I, I, I mean, from Colossians, I asked the wives, Wives, how do you submit joyfully and not just dutifully? I mean, far be it from me as a husband and a, a man to tell wives how to submit joyfully rather than dutifully. My best answer would just, I just quote James 1, 2 through 8 and just say, all I got is the Bible. Like, I'm not a wife, so there it is for you. But I asked wives in our church, what would you tell other wives? And here's two quotes from our wives. This might help, help the wives here and the husbands. I said, what is it like to submit joyfully and not dutifully? One wife said, it's freeing to know that the burden of deciding and bearing the responsibility for failing is on the husband (laughs) and not on me. You get the final decision, but you get the blame, right? You get the blame when it goes bad and it fails. And that's right. You can't just take the authority without the the consequences, right? Uh, And then another wife said, "It's it's hard, but good for both of us. 
Submitting to my husband's decision was heart-wrenching, but his leadership grew significantly. My friendship with him and trust in his leadership was strengthened, and we grew in ways we couldn't have otherwise. I just want to encourage you wives, and I want to commend you wives for doing that. Your husbands would not be the men they are without your godliness. All right, now husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. It says in verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is a self-giving love. It says in, in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as what? Well, no, sorry, verse 28. You did ask Christ to love the church, this is verse 25. 28, husbands should love their wives as what? As their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh but cherishes it. So, so what does it mean for husbands to love their wives? At least two things here. They should love their wives sacrificially, right? Christ gave himself up for the church. So husbands, love your wives sacrificially. And, and then secondly, it says here in verse 26, what's the purpose of loving her sacrificially? That he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the word. So husbands, love your wives purposefully. And what's the purpose of your love? It's not so that she would do what you want. It's so that she would grow in holiness. She would grow in sanctification, in joy in the Lord, in worship of the Lord. So husbands, lay down your lives so that your wife would grow in Christ, so she would grow in love, in holiness. So love your wives purposefully. Next it says, um, at least with loving your wife as your own body in verse 28, if you, how, how often do you love your own body? Regularly, like all the time, right? You don't hurt your own body, typically. You, and even when you're exercising to put your, push your body to pain, it's because you love your body, you're trying to strengthen your body, right? When do you love your body? You're constantly loving your body. And so how, how often should you love your wife? Constantly, regularly. Because loving your wife is loving yourself. Because she is your body. Why? Because the two have become what? One flesh. So don't attack yourself. Love your, you already love yourself. Just realize that she's actually you. And you are her. Francis Tobian is Mrs. PJ Tobian. That's why we even say that. Mrs. You know, I, a lot of times when I speak to our wives in our church, I just call them Mrs. sometimes their husband's name, just to reaffirm the fact that they are one, that you are Mrs. PJ and you're Mr. PJ, right? Mrs. Jeff Luddington and Mr. Jeff Luddington, they're one. Don't attack Jeff Luddington. Jeff, don't, you know, like love your wife because she's you. You're one. So love your wife constantly. And then it says here, lastly, in verse 32, sorry guys, I, I always go verse by first, verse, phrase by phrase, but I got such a huge chunk with such little time, I feel almost guilty skipping over phrases, but I got to do it because I want to make sure I get done. All right, so I'm sorry about that, but we're going to, so, so verse 32, um, for, well, first of all, it says in Genesis, he quotes Genesis 2 where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to whom? His wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2, right? Okay, and then here's what Paul says about Genesis 2. You know what was said, you know when God said that all about in the garden, you know what he was talking about? What was God talking about in the garden? Was he talking about Adam and Eve? That's the first wedding. He wasn't talking about Adam and Eve ultimately. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers, in Genesis 2, when God said it, it refers to what? Christ and the church. All of your marriages are about Christ and the church. That's why I don't let people write their own wedding vows at the wedding. First of all, you don't know what you're promising. You've never been married before. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what worse is for better or for worse. 
You just want to share some poem about how sentimentally flowery your love is. That's great. That's not going to get you through the hard times, right? Listen to people who've been married. They know what to promise. They know how to bind you so that you can stick to it for the long haul. And But a lot of weddings are there to like display. A lot of people use weddings to display their own unique love. And what I tell couples is the, the most glorious thing about your wedding is not what makes it unique, but what's common about your wedding. That all of these weddings and all of these marriages point to Christ and the church. That's the glory of the wedding. That two people are going to become one flesh, showing everyone there, just like every other couple that got married, that Christ has united himself to his bride. That's what it's all about. That's the mystery of the gospel. Christ left his father in heaven, came to the earth, lived the life for his bride, died for her sins, and became one with her in his resurrection. That's what marriage is about. That's what loving your wife is about. That's what submitting to your husband is about. And if you're not a Christian here, this is the greatest news in the whole world, that God the Son would come down and become a man to save his people, his bride, from their sins. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to explain the gospel to you briefly. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. That means that we are damned. You hear that word lately? Damned. We are damned and condemned to hell in the lake of fire forever for even just one sin. The wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. God sent his son to become a man, to live the life we should have lived in perfect righteousness, to die on the cross for your sins and my sins, and to rise from the dead, to save you and forgive you of all your sin and to give you his Holy Spirit, if you will, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian today, and children, if you're not a Christian today, you're not, you're not a Christian because your parents are, right? Children, God is calling you right now through my voice to turn from your sins and to turn from your religion and to turn from your good works and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's the good news. And that's, the, that's what marriage is, and that's why we do it. All right, I have some application for singles, but I got to move on just because of time. All right, so let's move on. So parents, children, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So how should you children obey? Right away. In our home, we say right away, all the way with a happy heart. Immediately, completely, and happily. So the kids know it. They, they're not happy when they say, how are you supposed to obey? Uh, I say to one of my daughters, uh, one of my daughters' name is City. City, how are you supposed to obey? Right away, all the way with a happy heart. You're not saying it with a happy heart. How are you supposed to obey? Right away, all the way with a happy heart. Because authority is good for you if we're using it well and we're not oppressing you right? So children, obey your parents. But it says obey your parents in the Lord. So when your parents tell you to sin, should you obey your parents? No. You get to disobey your parents when they're telling you to sin. That's what Jesus is saying, right? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But it is not right to obey your parents when your parents tell you to disobey Jesus. So you should not obey your parents, not only obey your parents immediately and completely and happily, but you should obey your parents worshipfully. And that doesn't mean worshiping your parents, it means worshiping who? Jesus, right? 
And then it says in verse 2, honor your father and your mother. So you should, work, you should obey your parents honorably. Honor your parents. Obey your parents when you're in their home. But when you grow up and you move out of your parents' home, do you still have to obey them? Are you still under their authority? No. But do you still have to honor them? Yes. Ephesians 6.2 is a lifetime command. Honor your father and your mother all the way to the grave and even beyond the grave. Honor your parents. And then obey your parents, hopefully. Look at verse 3. Uh, this is the first command with the promise, honor your parents. Why? When you honor your parents, what's God's promise in verse 3? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There's a, there's a, there's a reward for obeying and honoring your parents. And living long in the land in the Old Testament is living in the promised land. And for us, the promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. You will live long in the land and you will enjoy the rewards of honoring and obeying your parents worshipfully and immediately and honorably. So, so obey your parents hopefully, hoping in the reward to come. Parents, let's go to you. Verse 4. Fathers. Now notice it says fathers, not parents. It's not to say mothers don't have this responsibility. But who's finally responsible? The dad, right? The head of the household. Now, wives are, and they're one, so they're, they're doing this together. But that means dads, when you're home and your child needs discipline, who should, who's ultimately responsible for the discipline? The, the husband is, right? The, the dad. That means you need to take the initiative. It is your responsibility. Your wives have the freeing disposition to support you, but you have the heavy responsibility to make sure things happen, okay? So fathers, do not, two commands, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in what? The discipline of the Lord. Don't provoke your children. Don't pester your children. Serve your children. Don't annoy your children. Make it, make it a joy for your children to be in your home. Don't neglect your children. Pay attention to your children. Don't provoke your children to anger. Give them reasons to celebrate the goodness of God and the joy of living in your home. Engage them. Try with your children. Initiate with your children. And keep moving toward your kids. Don't withdraw from your kids. You're saying, I don't know what to do. Sometimes there's tough situations, PJ. I just feel disconnected from your, your child. I feel that. I, my prayer request lately, if you ever think about praying for me, what, I, what I've been telling people when they ask how they can pray for me, I'm saying, you know what? My kids are in the teen years now. My oldest is 16. He's taller than me now. So this is weird for me, but I mean, so those of you who have older kids, you're used to it, right? I'm not used to it yet. It's weird to see another grown man in my home when I look down the hall. Sometimes I just do a double take, like, what? Who's that guy in my hallway, right? But, but um, I, as my 16, 14, and 12, my oldest three, as they're moving into these, these adolescent years, the effective way I've been parenting them in their younger years is not effective right now. And there's, a, there's, there's, I'm, I'm, there's, some, connecting there's some connector blocks that are happening in my, in my parenting. And so I feel discouraged and I want to just give up. But this passage is saying, don't give up. You can't give up. You must not give up. You need to keep trying. So I'm, I'm telling you, dads, if you're having a hard time, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying keep trying. Don't give up. Don't make excuses. You have a privilege and responsibility to keep engaging, so keep engaging and leading, okay, and raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Now, let, next, let's go to work. You're saying, PJ, it doesn't, says work. it doesn't say work. It says slaves and masters. Oh, man, I'm like, Jeff, why do you give me this passage? I got to explain slavery now uh, in like two minutes, okay? So just briefly on slavery, two things. 
One, slavery here is not the same as slavery of American slavery. It's not chattel slavery. You don't own the person. It's not based on race, which isn't even a, it's just, that's a made-up category. It's not based on ethnicity or ancestry or the land you're from or the color of your skin. In this time, it was, it was monetary. You would go in, you'd be an indentured servant. Now, there's still a lot of injustices there, but you could, you could buy your freedom. And, and there were slaves who were doctors and lawyers and other things, even though the, the master might not be that, but they were indebted to them and they must serve their masters. Okay, so it is different, but there were still injustices there, which is why he gets to 6-9. The second, second thing I need to say is that um, we, we need to just mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. We need to mourn and lament the fact that gospel preaching, when I say gospel preaching, cross and resurrection, justification by faith alone, Bible-believing Christians, Christians, have used texts like this to justify the evil of American slavery. That is wrong. That is satanic. That is demonic. It's wrong. We need to understand that. That needs to keep being said every time you read these texts, whenever you preach this passage in America. So I got to say that. I'd, I'd want to say a whole lot more, but I got, now, now, there's still some things here that apply now to the workplace. So if you could just forgive me for not going deeper in that, I'm just going to move to like how it applies now because I got to move. I got five minutes. Okay. Um, so slaves, it says here, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So that means with fear and trembling, with a sincere, sincere heart, obeying as you would whom? Christ. So when you're in the workplace, if you're an employee or if you're in the military or other places of authority, obey those in authority with fear and trembling and a sincere heart. In other words, work reverently. Work with reverence towards Christ while you're working. Next, it says in verse uh, 7, rendering, or it says in verse 6, doing it not, as, not with eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing it from the what? Doing the will of God from the heart. So in other words, work sincerely and work enthusiastically. Work willingly. Um, work worshipfully. Make sure you're worshiping God. Work heartily. Ask the Lord with all your heart. And then in verse 8, why should you work this way? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from whom? The Lord, whether he's a slave or free. In other words, there's a judgment day. So I would say here, work mindfully. Work mindfully of the final judgment. God watches what you're doing at work, and he will judge, and he will reward. Man, I got so much application here, because this is like 40 hours of your week. Let me just say some things to convict you, maybe. Do people at work know you're a Christian, and that you trust and follow Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if they do, ask yourself this, is it helpful to Christ's mission that they know you're a Christian, or is it harmful to Christ's mission that they know you're a Christian? Like, oh, that dude's a Christian? Dang, that's what Christians are like? Or it's like, oh, wow, that's what a Christian is. Wow. So, so, so how do, if people know you're a Christian, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Christ's honor and for the mission? Are you tempted to cheat your job when working from home and no one's looking? Ouch. Are you tempted to complain and share your complaints with others in conversation because it's easy to connect relationally if you share a complaint? Are you seeking to use your clients or merely tolerate them rather than bless them and serve them? Are you lazy at work and not doing a good job? Are you content to waste time? Are you tempted to cut corners and do shoddy work? Are you tempted to be consumed with your work and become a workaholic? Too many hours, taking work home when it's unnecessary and calling it necessary. Daydreaming about the work promotion or the, the professional advancement with Christ absent from your picture and your vision of the future. 
I have more there on work, but that's just some things to think about. We want to worship the Lord at work. We want to do a good job. If you want to read a story about a good worker, which I would love to tell you the story, but you can read it, Genesis 39. Look at Joseph when he was a slave, working, and how good and how God's favor was on him and how, his lead, how those in authority trusted him with everything because he was a good worker. Genesis 39, you can read that for homework. All right, masters, verse nine. Masters, do the same to them, which means, what does that mean to do the same to your slaves? That means um, treat them with reverence towards God. Uh, use your authority sincerely and worshipfully and heartfully. And you masters and you, uh, you employers and you bosses at work, use your authority knowing that God will also judge you without partiality, it says in verse nine. You are going to give an account for how you use your authority in the workplace, in the military, in whatever, whatever organizations you're part of. You will give an account to the ultimate judge. So make sure you exercise and use your authority to serve and bless. Don't threaten people. Don't abuse and manipulate and oppress people with your position and leverage. God, our master, will judge without partiality. He'll judge righteously, fairly, and justly. All right, so that was all under walk carefully. Now I got like, I know I, I got like, I'm going to go to 50 minutes. I said 45. I'm going to take three or four more minutes, all right? Let me just talk about stand firmly, just briefly. Stand firmly. So that's walk carefully, right, in the household and at work, and now stand firmly. How should you stand firmly? Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Let's just look at these last 10 verses. How should you stand firmly? You need to suit up, you need to stand up, and you need to speak up. Suit up means put on the whole armor of God. Put on, suit up. Put it on, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Look to Christ your Lord who is already strengthening you. Stand in his strength and suit up. Put on the armor of God. Why? Verse 12, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You guys got enemies, right? You guys got opponents, maybe at work, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe in the community. You don't have, those are not the real opponents, right? Celtic fans to me are, are some of my opponents, right? As a Laker fan. Let anyone win but the Celtics, right? Praise God for the Warriors winning this year. Um, <laughs> Just don't let them beat the Lakers in championships, right? But they're not my real enemies. They're not the real opponents. All competition, and I, I love healthy competition, but all competition is an echo of the real battle. There is a real enemy that we want to crush and destroy. We want to dominate. We want the gospel to spread everywhere all over Cerritos, right? And, and Lakewood and Long Beach. We want to dominate this enemy. We want to kill sin in our lives. We want to kill sin in our marriages. We want to kill sin in our households. We want to kill sin in the workplace. We want Christ to be exalted everywhere. We want to dominate the real battle against the real opponent. So suit up. Put on the armor of God. Next, verse 13 through 17, stand up. That's the command of verse 14. Stand therefore. And so you're going to put on the belt of truth, which means you need to be honest. The truth of God's word should mean that we should be honest and not be hypocritical. So put on the belt of truth. Next, it says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is what guards your heart from any kinds of attacks. Put on the righteousness of Christ. And that means once you put on that righteousness of Christ, learn to walk in the righteousness of Christ. Okay? So you're standing perfectly righteous in Christ, justification by faith alone, not by works. But that leads to sanctification and transformation where you're transformed to do righteousness because of the righteousness of Christ. Right? So walk in that righteousness, put on that breastplate of righteousness. Um, because Satan is going to tell you, you're not righteous. God doesn't accept you. Don't doubt that. You're righteous in Christ. Next, lace up the boots of the gospel of peace. In other words, boots, you, you put on shoes to do what? To walk, right? To get somewhere, to advance the cause. So keep walking forward. And what is the cause? It's the boots of the gospel of peace. 
because people are in hostility with God and they're in hostility with one another and they're divided and you have the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the good news of peace. Peace with God, peace within their own heart and mind, peace in their households, peace in the community because of what Christ did in his death and resurrection. Don't forget your mission. You're not advancing your career. You're not advancing your family. You're not advancing your health. You're advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put on those boots, strap them on, and keep marching, okay? Lace up the boots. Next, um, stay, be, uh, stay behind your shield of faith. Put on the shield of faith, and that means trusting in the truth of God and the truth of the gospel because Satan is going to have fiery arrows aimed at you, and you need a, a shield to block the arrows and to extinguish the fire, so that you can keep going, because Satan is trying to take you out. He wants to choke out your faith. Satan actually doesn't mind if you succeed at work, or in your marriage, or in your parenting. He just cares that you stop trusting in Jesus. So sometimes he'll use suffering to get you to stop trusting Jesus. Sometimes he'll use the earthly distractions, riches, and the pleasures of this world, and success elsewhere to get you to stop living for Jesus. You gotta put those arrows out with the shield of faith, because they're coming at you. Next, the sword of the spirit, or the helmet of salvation, which protects your head, the fact that you're saved, right? And then the, 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 the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take the Bible, memorize the Bible, and use the Bible to teach people about Jesus, to fight sin in your life, to fight sin in the lives of others. That's what you need to do. You need to stand in this armor against the enemy. So I said, suit up, stand up, and lastly, speak up. Now, when I say speak up, I'm not speaking up to others. Speak up. Which means talk to whom? To God. Look at verse 18. We get close here with 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the spirit. So pray to God. Pray with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. What should you pray for in verse 18? Make supplication for whom? For all the saints. That's what we pray for Generations Church. That's why I pray for Generations Church at Bethany Baptist Church. Because you guys are saints. And I don't pray for all, I pray for all the saints that I know that I could pray for. I try to pray for more saints, right? Pray for all the saints. Why? And, and also pray for Paul. What should we be praying? That the words may be given to the opening of his mouth to spread the what? To proclaim the mystery of the gospel. To spread the gospel. Pray for the gospel to spread. Pray for each other that we would open our mouths to talk about the gospel. Pray Ephesians 1.18 that we, God would open our eyes to the power working in us. Pray Ephesians 3. 14 through 20. Pray that we would be strengthened in the inner man. Pray that we would um, be, have the strength to comprehend what is the length and depth and width and breadth of the love of God and, and, the, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Pray, 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 pray. May the Lord help you walk carefully by the Spirit. May the Lord help you stand firmly for His glory and the advancement of His cause. Peace be to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.